Hi, welcome to the podcast of An English Prof Reads the Bible. I'm your host, Megan. Today, we're going to be talking about Psalm 51. I want to take a look at the word choice and the implied meaning of those words, the imagery in the psalm, the structure of the psalm, in order to see what the psalm says about the origin and the effects of sin, and most importantly, about the way of forgiveness. So, before I get started, though, I want to answer the question, why in the world am I bothering to talk about this psalm? I feel as though this is one of the psalms that's the most talked about already, right up there with Psalm 23. And then, of course, it's primarily about sin, and a lot of times it can feel like we talk about sin enough already. I have three reasons for wanting to do this psalm. One, uh, just like with Psalm 23, if we're going to talk about this psalm a lot, then we should talk about it well, with an awareness of its literary structures. The second reason is that I think this psalm illustrates really well the difference between a doctrinal approach to Scripture and a literary approach to Scripture. You can think of this like traveling to your grandmother's house, and maybe you have two different routes to get there, and you'll get something a little bit different out of each route. Maybe you go through the mountains on, on one route, and you go through a, over a river on the other route, but you end in the same place. A doctrinal and a literary approach are very similar. Even though we might end in the same place interpretation-wise, we'll get something a little bit different out of each journey. The third reason is that it is worth addressing our sin. This can be something really difficult to do, and even in the Psalms, a lot of the ones that David writes focus on the sin of other people. In fact, uh, next week we're going to look at Psalm 52, where David asks for God to protect him against other people's sin. And so it's worth taking a moment here to think about our own sin and to take an honest look inside about our own spiritual brokenness and our own spiritual needs. So, just like usual, I'm going to go ahead and read the psalm. Uh, this one's a little bit lengthier than usual, and then I will start to unpack it literarily. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. 
Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. All right, so I want to start with the very first verse. Uh, that's always a good place to start. The beginning is, of course, a key place in a literary text, and here is no exception. The first line is going to set the tone for for the rest of the psalm. So what I notice in the first lines here is that uh, David begins with a plea. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Cleanse me from my sin. And this is interesting to me because the psalm does go on to elaborate on the effects of sin in our lives, and it becomes kind of the psalm about sin, but it does not actually begin with a focus on the sin. Rather, it begins with a focus on God's mercy and a plea for God's mercy. And what this tells me is that even in the context of our sin, even when we're thinking about our sin in this in this redemptive ark, God's mercy is foremost. It is uh, most important. It's most powerful. It's the most important character in the story. I think of John Milton's Paradise Lost here, and there God faces humankind sin and declares that he's going to redeem them so that mercy first and last may brightest shine. And that's what we have in this psalm is God's mercy is shining brightly even against the dark backdrop of our own sin. It also says something important about us because the focus is on God's mercy, but um, the, this focus is framed in a plea from David to God asking for mercy. And so we see right off the bat that we are utterly dependent on God. This is a, a key part of the human character in this psalm is that we need God to give us his mercy. And so in this context, the psalm raises a couple of important questions. The first is the nature of sin. Where does it come from? What are its effects? And then secondly, and most importantly, how do we get rid of it? Uh, how does God's mercy enter our lives? And what happens to us when we are affected by God's mercy? So let's get started with a focus on the nature of sin. And I want to take a look at verse 5 for this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. A doctrinal reading of this verse will often look at it as a proof text for the idea of total depravity, that mankind is broken or corrupted by sin in every aspect of his being. And... I think that there's another approach to this because it's not a propositional statement on human nature. It's an image. It's a picture of birth. And like any image, it, there's more to it than just the words on the page. It's supposed to evoke something deeper. 
And when I think about the idea of birth, I think about uh, birth being indicative of our origins, our roots of our being. Um, you know, we, we chalk a lot of our personality up to who our parents are or what our genetics are or even where, where we're born in the world. And so our birth uh, really plays into who we're going to become. And so what the psalm is indicating is that sin is at the root of our being. It's something inescapable. It's, it's woven into who we are. I'm also struck by the idea that birth is an act of creation. And sin, of course, is, is against God's creation. And so for sin to be present at our birth suggests that we by our sinful nature, are unweaving God's created order. Verse 11 says something about the effects of these sins. Do not cast me away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And this this separation between David and God is, you know, natural in the context of verse 5. If sin is an unraveling of the created order, then we're essentially sawing off the branch that we that we stand on. We're we're separating ourselves um, from the creator. However, I think the implied meaning of the verbs here is also interesting. Cast away and take, these are active verbs. It applies an action on God's part. He doesn't stop loving us, but he does distance himself from sin in, in us. And this is a heartbreaking consequence because we depend on God for our being. Uh, we will flounder, we will shrivel up, we will die without him, and yet sin is baked into our being. And so what do we do about this dilemma? And thankfully, in the rest of the psalm, there is abundant mercy for us. And so where does it come from? How do we get it? And we go back to the beginning of the psalm for this. Verses 2 through 3 are important here. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. From a doctrinal approach, we would read this verse as um, instruction to ask for forgiveness. And it is that, but because it's literature, there's more to it than just the words on the page. It's worth noting the implied meaning of these words, the words blot and wash. Uh, these are imperative. In other words, they're phrased as a command like my mother uh, telling me, go wash the dishes, Megan. Uh, wash is a, a command there. But here, it's this is a plea from the psalmist who has sinned to a holy God, and so it does not make sense for this to be a command. I think it's better read as a deep and utterly sincere request, uh, very similar to the way we would say, marry me. And Mary is... It phrased as the imperative, but it's not actually a command, or at least it shouldn't be. And so, you know, we see the psalmist's uh, desperation here for forgiveness. The sequence is also interesting. It's worth noting that the request that God blot out uh, the psalmist's sins is preceded by an acknowledgement of God's mercy, and it is followed by the psalmist acknowledging his own sin. And so what this pattern suggests, um, you know, 
this book ending suggests is that these are the two key pieces that need to be in place for forgiveness to happen. God's mercy, uh, we find out in the New Testament, his mercy through Christ needs to be present for forgiveness to happen. And we also need to acknowledge our sin in order to be forgiven of it. There's some interesting imagery around the word blot. Uh, because blot is messy, it's a stain. And we know, of course, that sin is a stain. And so what David is essentially asking God is for God to stain his stain, to undo his act of uncreation, to recreate. Uh, The word thoroughly is also interesting because thoroughly implies totally, something that affects every aspect of our being. And so we see in this that uh, forgiveness is not a free pass for sins. It's not God going back and and rubber stamping uh, what we've done and saying, okay, I'm going to let you off the hook this time. It's a total transformation, a recreation, a new life. And it is to be had by acknowledging God's mercy and owning up to our sins. I want to talk for just a little bit about the transformative and beautiful effects of this mercy on our own lives. And to start this, I want to look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. The words create and renew are interesting to me here because create is to make something brand new. I am creating this podcast, but renew is to make something over again. I renew a book from the library and I get it for another three weeks, just like I had it for three weeks the first time. And so these two things are a little bit contradictory right off the bat. When you put them together, what I think it's saying is that God's mercy is restoring the original intended good order. Through God's mercy in our lives, we are becoming who we were originally intended to be. Everything is put back the way that it was. I also want to take a look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And we see, of course, quite clearly that joy is an effect of mercy. But what I want to focus on is that word uphold. Because the that word choice, what it implies is a continual maintenance of forgiveness. This is not something that's one one and done. This is God perpetually working in our lives, uh, drawing us closer to him, restoring us to himself, and making us more like him. I next want to look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. And whenever I've heard this verse talked about doctrinally, I've heard it as a command to go out and share the gospel with people. But from a literary approach, it's not actually phrased as a command. The psalmist is describing something he's doing or intends to do, I will teach. And he also describes something that will happen. Sinners shall be converted to you. And when you look at those two verbs, uh, there's something interesting that I notice. Uh, One is an active verb, I will teach. The psalmist is actively going to go out and work at bringing other people into harmony with God. But the second verb, shall be converted to you, is passive. And it indicates that the sinners are not being converted to God by their own action, or presumably by the action of the speaker. 
The speaker, in other words, is not the one who's actually doing the converting. And so that raises the question, well, who is converting them? And the natural answer is God. And so what we see here is that the speaker is intentionally seeking to bring other people into harmony with God, but it's God who's making that harmony happen. And so when we are in line with God's mercy, we become a channel or a conduit of his grace. Two more effects that I think there are of God's mercy. The first one is in verse 15. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Again, this is a plea to God. The psalmist is asking that God work on him in such a way as to make him able to to praise him, uh, you know, just like in verse 13, God is the one who is most active here. But what I notice is that uh, the psalmist says, you know, O Lord, open my lips, my mouth shall praise you. He doesn't just say, God, make me able to praise you. He refers to uh, the lips and the mouth instead of to his whole being. This is a literary device called synecdoche. It's substituting a part, like the lips or the mouth, for the whole, the whole person. And when I think about why the psalmist referred to his lips and mouth instead of just saying, hey God, make me able to praise you with my whole being, I think about the lips and the mouth being very small and specific parts of our being. And the synecdoche indicates that we are transformed in, in even the tiniest aspects of our being. God gets into the nooks and crannies of our lives and makes us more like himself, even in that, that those little parts of our lives. The final verse that I want to look at here is verse 18. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. And up to this point, we have been focusing on the individual psalmist's relationship with God. And here we take a step back and we look at the effect of God's mercy on a large group of of people. Jerusalem is, of course, Jerusalem. It's also a symbol for the people of God, whether in the Old Testament or uh, the the church around the world in the New Testament. And the psalmist is asking that God build the walls of Jerusalem. And walls confer protection. They confer strength, especially in Old Testament warfare periods. He asks for God to do good to Jerusalem, to bless Jerusalem. And so what I see from this is that God's mercy to our individual lives brings blessing to the community, strengthens the community spiritually, gives it spiritual power. And through his mercy to individuals, God builds up our community. And I think that is, I think that's beautiful. And so I want to end with an application. Spiritually, I want to encourage you to think about how God's mercy is at work in your life, transforming you, getting into the nooks and crannies of who you are, making you more like himself and using you to bless other people and to draw them into relationship with himself. Literarily, I want to encourage you not to 
stop with doctrinal propositional statements about the Bible, because the Bible is not generally written as a philosophy textbook. Um, there's nothing wrong with finding the doctrinal truths in Scripture. That's a very good thing indeed. But don't stop there. Dig deeper into the literary aspect of the text to look at the implied meanings, look at the imagery, look at the structure, and that will make for a very rich reading experience. This brings us to the end of the seventh episode of An English Prof Reads the Bible. I'm your host, Megan. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you do enjoy it, I would encourage you to share the podcast with your friends or leave us a review on your podcast provider, such as iTunes. Reviews make it much easier for new people to find us, so I would really appreciate that if possible. You can also connect with us online. I have a new Facebook page. It's called, surprise, surprise, An English Prof Reads the Bible. Uh, I also have a WordPress site. EnglishProfReadsTheBible.wordpress.com. I'll use the WordPress site to occasionally post show notes and also to provide an RSS feed with links to the newest episodes. There will be a new episode up next week, so I will look forward to joining you then. Have a good week.